So today's reading is from Acts 6, 1 to 7, um, the choosing of the seven. Uh, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among, among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on the tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of spirit, of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a number of the priests became obedient to the faith. Well, good morning, friends. It's a pleasure to be here once again. Um, speaking of the book of Leviticus, um, my own little advert, when my wife was in labor, I actually was sitting there reading a commentary on the book of Leviticus. That's how good the book is. Um, for the mothers who are feeling a little bit horrified at that, rest assured when, my, when I was needed, my wife very much came first. Um, as we come to the book of Acts, chapter 6, uh, let us pray and ask for the Lord's help. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that you speak to us through it. Lord, we pray now as we come to it that we would have ears that are keen and ready to listen, that we would have eyes that see you more clearly, and Lord, that we would have hearts that have changed to be more like you. Uh, Lord, we pray uh, that you would help me to speak clearly and truthfully to what you have revealed in Scripture. And ultimately, Lord, we pray uh, that you would make yourself known this morning and that you would be uh, reaching out to us and drawing us closer to yourself. Amen. Uh, many years ago, I um, had the, the pleasure and honour of being able to travel through Central Asia, uh, particularly one of the Stan countries. Uh, I went with a medium-sized group um, with some people that I was studying with. And when we went, uh, we made the decision to not use hotels. We stayed with the locals. Uh, the particular people that we were staying with were sort of friends and contacts of the different missionaries that were there and the local church. Uh, so me and my friend Chris had the honor of staying in a small apartment with three university students. Uh, now, when we first arrived on that first night, these guys, they wanted to honour us and love us and sort of welcome us with all the hospitality that their culture has to offer. And so they cooked a meal for us. Now, when I was much, much younger, I was a very, very, very fussy, picky eater. And so as I got older, I've, I've improved considerably. Uh, but one of the strategies that I had learned to sort of help with this was you just ask, oh, what, what's going to be the meal? Just to sort of go, okay, do I need to mentally prepare myself for something horrifying? Is this going to be safe? What's going to happen? And so sort of did some fishing. They sort of said, oh, it's going to be like a, a lamb soup stew kind of thing with some fresh vegetables. I'm thinking, sweet, awesome. Lamb stew, I can do that. Yep, you know, different culture, different spices, might be slightly different flavor palette, but it's lamb stew. Like, what can go wrong? Well, as the honored guest, we got the prime cut of meat. And so when it came out, um, imagine sort of just a bowl with some very, what looks like very oily water and some vegetables. But then sitting in the center of it was this piece of lamb. The meat on the lamb was about the size of my thumbnail, maybe a millimeter thick. And then attached to that 
was a fist size piece of fat. That was the lamb. Uh, now, if it's not obvious, my cultural heritage is as European as European comes. Traditionally, we do not eat fat. It's almost considered actually the worst part of the meat for us culturally. I recognize in other cultures that is different as was the case here, but for myself, I was staring down something horrifying. But as the good guest and wanting to show gratitude to these guys, I proceeded to eat it. I am pleased to say that I finished the meal. Uh, several hours later, the meal finished me. It was anything but pleasant. In fact, that whole first four hours of this homestay was terrible, absolutely terrible. What was at play here? These guys were seeking to love me and my friend Chris well. And within their sort of framework of how they viewed life, they thought that they were going about that as best they could. They thought they were doing a good job. Within their culture, I'm quite confident they were doing a good job. But in reality, for me, in my experience, it was anything but love. It was terrible. It was uncomfortable. It was messy. It was unpleasant and unloving in every sense of the word. What was happening? They had failed to recognize my cultural background, which happens all the time. They had failed to recognize what my sensibilities were. And so they had acted, in a sense, in ignorance. And therefore, they had left me feeling very unloved. Now, at one level, this small story, it's quite trivial, but it points to something much deeper that all of us feel and all of us experience. How do we actually love others that are vastly different to ourselves? It's an incredibly challenging question. And it's a very challenging question to answer. And so as we look at the book of Acts in chapter 6, we actually see a story where this is played out. How does the early church respond? How do they seek to love a group that has felt neglected and hasn't been loved well? Uh, we're going to look uh, at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, uh, through three headings. Uh, we're first going to look at the context of gospel love. Uh, what is the context that it happens in? Who are these people? Uh, what are their sensibilities? Where are they in society? Uh, the process of gospel love. How do they actually do it? And then the source of gospel love. What drives it? How are they actually able to achieve uh, the process? Uh, for those who aren't too familiar with the book of Acts, uh, it's volume two of the gospel of Luke. It's the same author. Uh, and in the book of Luke, we sort of get this motif of this is what Jesus begins to do. And then we see, of course, his life, his teaching, and that climaxes in his death and resurrection. And then we get volume two, the book of Acts, what Jesus continues to do from his ascended place next to the father. And we see how the gospel goes out under his direction. And so here in chapter six, we are presented with this story where there's a bit of tension within the early church. Uh, in terms of a year of roughly when this happens, we're looking at somewhere between 34 to maybe at latest 40 AD. So this is very, very early in the church's life. Now, the first thing for us to notice with this story is the context within Acts itself. Immediately before, we actually get a story of the apostles being persecuted in chapter 5. Uh, Peter and John specifically are thrown into prison. Uh, we read in chapter 5, verse 40. If you have your Bibles, please follow along. Uh, chapter 5, verse 40, they, uh, referring to the Jewish council, uh, they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. 
And then immediately following our passage in chapter 7 as well, we have another story of persecution. Uh, A man by the name of Stephen, who we actually meet in our passage, is proclaiming the gospel. The Jews don't like that, and so they stone him to death. And then immediately following that, we are told that there is this great persecution that breaks out. So much so that all of the, the Christians that are in Jerusalem have to flee. Intense persecution. And so then as we think about the groups within the church, we have to recognize we're not talking about a huge majority people group that are oppressing a small minority. This is two small minorities, a minority within a minority, so to speak. The second thing for us to notice actually comes in our passage. Uh, Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 6 and how it starts. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, it's almost a little bit arbitrary. In those days, just the other day, this happened. Notice that there's nothing specific that's really mentioned. Yes, the disciples, the number of the disciples were increasing, but that's quite normal at this time. There was no particular event that sparked anything. There was no big political uproar that caused some kind of tension. It was just in the everyday happenstance of the church. It was regular, day-to-day happenings. So what then actually is the event that happens? What is it? that causes this tension. Uh, Look with me at the second half of verse 1. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. What is happening? Well, within the church, there is a subcultural group that is being overlooked. Their needs are not being met. Uh, Now, notice the two groups that we have here. Uh, Both are described as Jews. So these are Jewish Christians. One of them, uh, the Hellenistic Jews. Uh, In some other translations, it might say Grecian. Uh, Hellenist is just, it's a Greek person. So this would be a Jew who did not come back from the exile. And so they speak the majority language of the rest of the world at that time being Greek, the very language that our Bibles were first written in, uh, the New Testament in particular. The other group, the Hebraic-speaking Jews, Hebrews. Now, keep in mind with this group, both of these groups are minorities. Both are feeling oppressed. Uh, The Hebrews from the Romans, the Greeks, because this is happening in Jerusalem where the majority language is Hebrew, And so they feel oppressed. They feel neglected. Is this an oversight of the church? Yes. Why is this then an issue? What is actually at play here? Why bring this issue up? Well, within the first century, there is no Centrelink. There's no Oz study, no pension, no government support if you don't earn enough. And so within this world, if you were particularly an elderly woman, if your sons, your husband had passed away from sickness or war or whatever it might have been, you were on your own. You were unable to earn a living for yourself. And so you were at the mercy of those around you. You would have to beg. And so when the church is failing to look after this small group of widows, they are almost leaving them to die. Now, the text does, gives no indication at all that this is deliberate. Uh, there is no indication that there is a malicious intent here. It's simply just an oversight. They didn't realise out of sight, out of mind, so to speak. But they were still being ignored. One of the most vulnerable portions of society at that time 
is being neglected because they do not speak the right language. They do not have the right culture. And so they are abandoned. Now, at one level, I think it's easy for us to dismiss the first century world as completely different from our own. Uh, But that is not the case at all. I know within my own church, uh, we have a congregation that does not speak English. They are from Africa. Many in that congregation uh, suffered through civil war. They saw horrific things firsthand. And now as refugees, they have come to Australia. They do not speak the language. They do not understand the culture. And so they are vulnerable, deeply in need. If I was then to approach someone within my own congregation and sort of just ask the simple question, who do you think is the most vulnerable in our community as a church? I don't think this congregation would get a mention. Out of sight, out of mind, different language, different culture, in this case, different coloured skin. Now, it's not because my congregation is particularly racist. We have people from many, many different cultures and backgrounds within our congregation. It's just simply out of sight, out of mind. And so this congregation is neglected. And that's in 2021. The first century world that the church existed in is no different to ours. We still suffer persecution in the same way. There are still challenges between cultures and language groups. But it's not just between cultures and language groups. It's between all portions of society. I remember... Many years ago, uh, one of my married friends who had just been married at the time basically made the observation after getting married, his single friends stopped hanging out with him. They stopped calling him, stopped texting him. He was no longer getting the stream of memes through his Facebook messenger. He had changed subgroups. He was no longer a single. He was now married. And so the singles treated him out of sight, out of mind. Someone different. There's no malicious intent. It was just different. What are those groups within your congregation? Between singles, marrieds, young family, old family, education levels, full-time workers, part-time workers, casual workers, students, high school, university, Who are those that you don't often see and realise are there? So then what is the process of how we improve this? What is the process then of gospel love? Well, the first thing for us to actually notice is we have to notice ourselves. We have to look at ourselves. I remember going to school uh, I noticed all of the different groups of friends that would happen would be around common likes. The things that would bind them together are those that enjoyed sport would often hang out together. Those that enjoyed doing drama and theatre and music would often be friends and hang out together. Those that enjoyed study would hang out together. Those that did not enjoy study would hang out together. It is normal and natural for us to gather towards what we ourselves are like. We will always be drawn to where we see ourselves best fitting in. And there is something normal and natural within that. uh, But the gospel calls us to be different from that. Uh, So look with me uh, from verses 2 through to 5 at how this church responds. Uh, From verse 2. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. 
Uh, there are three things in particular that we can actually see coming out of this little section. Uh, the first thing that we see, and is probably one of the most important, is the whole church is involved. Notice in verse 2, the 12 gathered all of the disciples. Not some, not just the leaders, all, everyone. Children, adults, every language group, every culture that's present, all of them. And then again, we see it again in verse 5. Uh, at the conclusion of the decisions to make, this proposal pleased the whole group. Everybody is involved. This isn't some side committee that gets made. This is something that the entire church is involved in, invested in, and needs to pay attention to. Notice with this as well, though, where the problem actually began in verse 1. It began amongst the members. Notice then who brings the problem to the surface, the members, not the leaders, uh, in verse 3. And then, sorry, look also where the solution comes from as well. Verse 3, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you, you who have brought this issue to us, you who have highlighted that there is a problem Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them. The issue is identified by the people, and the solution is going to be worked out by the people. The ministry of the church should not, cannot, and must not be left to just the leaders. It must not be left to those that we pay to be full-time ministers. The whole congregation, the whole church has the responsibility of actively caring for its members. It's everyone serving everyone. Now, that said, we also must keep it balanced. The leaders do not sit idly by here. They are deeply involved as well. They respond to the need that's brought to them by empowering those very people. Uh, verse 6. They, referring to the church, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. This is an act of acknowledging their place. It's an act of empowering them under God to do the ministry. The leaders commissioned the people to perform this ministry. And so there is this great harmony of lay and leadership working together. Which then leads us to the second part. There is a very inclusive priority in how they go about this. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, from verse 2, look at what the apostles say. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, it's important for us to realize uh, that this was not written in English originally. And so the phrase to wait on tables, which we might think of uh, talking about a waiter or a waitress at a cafe or restaurant, that is not the sense that is being meant here at all. The sense of actually what the apostles are trying to say is we aren't going to be the heads of the family in this matter. We're not going to be the one, the patriarch, that looks after everybody in the family. It's an image of the patriarchal head the one who makes sure that every single member has exactly what they need to go about their daily tasks. The apostles are denying that position to themselves and they are assigning it to somebody else. Why? Well, what do they say? It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word. For the apostles the ministry of the word and prayer is priority number one. And they acknowledge that. And then they act upon that. Now, that's not to say that they completely disregard the physical needs of that church. Uh, in the chapters before, we see several stories of the apostles doing exactly that. They are healing the sick. They are caring for the poor. And then in, at the same time, these seven men that were given, 
we hear of two of them straight after. Now, these particular seven men, so they are assigned the task of looking after widows, caring for their physical needs. But in the second half of chapter six, what do we see? Well, the first one that was named, Stephen. He's out proclaiming the gospel, ministry of the word. And then straight after that again, at the beginning of chapter eight, we see the second person that's mentioned, Philip. He's in Samaria proclaiming the gospel. It's cross-cultural evangelism. He's no longer in Jerusalem caring for the widows. And then again, Philip, in the second half of chapter 8, he's proclaiming the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch. Ministry of the word. And so what we have happening here is with these two sections of the church, those that are assigned this task to care for the widows and the apostles, they are acknowledging each other's ministries. They are acknowledging the importance and the necessity of those ministries, but they are maintaining their priority in ministry. The apostles' priority is to witness to the resurrection of Jesus. These seven men, their priority in this particular instance is to care for the needs of the widows of the Greek Jews. And so what the author Luke is actually doing here is giving us this delicate balance. It's the perfect example of the body of Christ. The hand is doing one task. The need is doing another. There is a great harmony and cohesion in what they are doing. And so we get this debate sometimes within churches of should we prioritize evangelism or should we prioritize caring for the poor? It's actually a silly question. It's both. You can't have one without the other. The two must go hand in hand because it is the ministry of the word that must go out, but what follows immediately after that when it's put into practice? It's caring for the weak, caring for the poor. But then on the other hand, if we put it around the other way, as we go out and care for the poor, what immediately follows? The spoken word of God, the gospel. And so this actually then points us into the right direction of the third thing that we must see of how they go about this. This ministry must be characterized by the Spirit. We must be characterized by the Spirit in how we do any ministry. I look again in verse 3, and notice how that these men who are chosen are described, known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, godly character, Christ-likeness. Now, noticing the, the word order, yes, it's very particular, but it's important. Known to be full of the spirit, that comes first. And wisdom, ability, technical skill, so to speak, that comes second. And so in your ministries, let me ask a question. Which do you prioritize? What comes first? It's a very difficult thing to actually do in practice. I will be the first to acknowledge and admit that, but it's necessary that we consider it. When we look through the rest of the New Testament about the characteristics that leaders are meant to have, how often does a technical skill actually come up? I've never seen for any description of a leader, you need to be able to balance a budget. You need to be able to be a handyman. You need to have a concrete knowledge of how to use Microsoft Word and Excel to plan rosters. None of that ever comes up. It's character, gentleness, patience, kindness, forgivingness, graciousness. There is only one instance where a different word is used that, could, that does, in fact, refer to a skill, and that's simply able to teach. But even that, it actually comes out of a character thing. Do you have the humility and patience to bear with another that doesn't know as much as you? Godly character. Now, I know how difficult this can sometimes be for a church. I know for myself, when I first became a Christian, 
I was asked to join my church's music ministry team. And I did. Looking back at that decision of my church many years later, I actually think they made the wrong decision. Why? My ability to play music was perfectly up to scratch. I was sort of on par with everybody else. But my character wasn't. I was a new Christian. There were deep and glaring sins that should have been dealt with first. But skill came first in that instance. And I actually think that was the wrong decision of my own church. Yes, we must admit, we, we, we can't all be as perfect as Jesus before we serve. Because if that was the case, none of us would serve. But that balance needs to be found. The priority needs to be there. Character. And so as we think about how do we care for these people that are so different from us and are so far away, it must come from our character. It must come from a deep place within us that overflows. And so then what is the source of how we do this? What is the source of gospel love? There is one who does it for us. Jesus. The book of Philippians describes Jesus as one who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. What is Jesus doing here? He's crossing boundaries. He's crossing over from where he was to where the people that are neglected are. From the glory and majesty of heaven to poverty, to a dirty, dusty earth. From the very heights of heaven and eternity to the very depths of human depravity. Jesus humbles himself and crosses those boundaries for us. And so as we think about how we go about ministry, how we reach out to those that are so different from us and that are neglected, we must first be willing to cross those boundaries. You can't have a conversation with somebody if you never reach out to them, if you never cross over to where they are. And it's also important that we realize that this is what Jesus has done for us. As we look at here in Acts chapter 6, a language group that is neglected, we have to see that first Jesus is neglected. He is abandoned on the cross. Those that are neglected because they don't have friends, they don't have solid relationships around it, look to Jesus who when he was approaching the cross, his friends say, I don't, I don't know this guy. No, I'm not his follower. I know nothing. Peter abandons Jesus in his moment of need. And so Jesus knows exactly what it is to be that one who is neglected. Jesus knows exactly what it is to be out of sight, out of mind. While yes, here in the book of Acts, it's passive. For Jesus, it wasn't passive. It was active. They actively rejected him. They actively turned away from him and left him. And that's what Jesus has done for us. And it is because Jesus has done that for us, we are able to do it for others. Friends, do you see what Jesus has done for you? Do you see how Jesus has crossed every barrier for you? But Jesus also doesn't just do something spiritual for us. He has done something physical and real for us. Uh, listen to how Jesus describes his own ministry in Luke chapter 4. Uh, Jesus is in a synagogue and he's preaching to those there. And he says... Quoting from the book of Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, 
to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What do we see Jesus doing? He's healing the blind. He's releasing the oppressed, but he's also proclaiming the gospel. The truth that God has forgiven sinners. There is this great harmony in his ministry for us. We do it because he did it first for us. And so, friends, when we think about how do we reach out to those that are so different from us, we must recognize that God in his mercy has reached out to us who are so different to him. The one who was perfect has reached out to those who are imperfect. The glorious one has reached out to us who are anything but glorious. Friends, we must recognize who we are. We must recognize who others are. We must know their context. We must know our context, our context of sin and rejection. What's the context for others around us? Jesus has crossed that for us. How do we physically and practically minister to these men and women around us? Jesus has done that first for us in releasing the blind, in bringing healing, in freeing us from our sin. And so how do we then do it? Well, we first must see Jesus. We must recognize Jesus, the one who gifts us with his spirit, the one who dwells with us just as he dwelt with his early church. And it is only through and by that that we are ever going to be able to reach anybody. It is only through and by Jesus that we are ever going to be able to cross that boundary for somebody else. Friends, we must care for those around us because Christ has first cared for us. Let us pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you that you did not stay in heaven. Lord, we thank you and praise you that you crossed every boundary that was separating us and the Father. Lord, we thank you that you experienced what it is to be hidden, to be rejected, to be out of sight and out of mind on the cross. And so, Lord, we thank you that from that we are included in your family. Lord, we thank you and praise you that our sins are taken away because of what you have done. And so, Lord, from that, we pray that we would have a deep knowledge and understanding of that, that we might then be able to go to those that society has rejected, that we might go to those that others do not see, the unseen people that you love, that you care for, and that you are calling into your family, Lord. And Lord, we pray this, that we might honour Jesus, that we might glorify Jesus, and that our lives might be in step with worshipping Jesus. And it is for his glory that we pray this. Amen. Um, thanks, Lozzie and Bren. I'll get uh, Dave to come up and uh, we'll go through um, any Q&A questions that we have. So first one, does that mean if we're serving in a ministry but have a sin to deal with, we must leave it? So I guess that's, that was kind of towards the end of your sermon you were talking yeah. about. Um, it's a great question. There is no right and wrong in this one. That one, it really depends. Um, so... On the one hand, all of us are sinful, and therefore, no, we shouldn't leave a ministry simply because there is a sin that we need to deal with, because all of us have sin that we must deal with. However, on the other side of things, uh, we must recognise in some ministries, it's not appropriate for us to serve in as if we are sinning. Um, consider these not so much an extreme example because it happens quite a lot, unfortunately, in church. Um, leaders 
who are marriageally unfit. It's not appropriate that they continue to serve in that role while committing that sin. Even sometimes after they've repented of that sin, it's not appropriate. And so we have to have this balance of, yes, we are sinful, and therefore we will always be sinful, we should keep serving under the gospel. Uh, but at the same time, there are sins that are much larger that we should actually step back from some ministry in order to deal with. Yeah. So it really, it's a wisdom, it is a wisdom one. And it's, if an individual thinks, no, I need to deal with this sin, I need to step back from the ministry. I think that's something that should be honored and acknowledged as a good thing to do. So kind of case by case, a sin might disqualify, I don't know if the word is disqualify, disqualify you from a ministry, but it might not from another, just depending mm. on what's going on and yeah. who, who you are. And yeah, cool. Absolutely. Yeah, so complicated question. Uh, sorry, complicated answer. Um, but hopefully that gives them an idea of uh, where to start thinking about it. Uh, second question, what is laying, laying hands? What is laying hands on people? So I think that was the disciple the 12 laid hands on the seven i think um so laying of hands is a very early practice within the church and even within um, jewish culture of um it's a way of praying for people like there's that because it's that physical touch mm. it's a very intimate way of sort of like this is the person we're praying for um it's something that many christian traditions to this day will still practice and do um there's nothing for lack of a better word, nothing magical about it. Um, it's just, it's a very physical gesture of we as the body of Christ or we as the leadership, in this case, the apostles, um, are acknowledging and commissioning these people with sort of our whole selves. And so that's symbolized and shown by physically laying hands on the other person. Yeah. Um, can, I, can I add to that? Yes, you uh, can. I'm really Absolutely. just plugging Leviticus, but uh, in Leviticus, you see a lot of laying hands. Uh, so priests will often lay hands on animals, and uh, it kind of, I don't know if I should tell you now or make you wait till we preach through it, but uh, it kind of it kind of con confers something that's not physical. So like in, the, in Leviticus, it's like conferring your sin upon the animal, uh, and then maybe here it's like conferring the authority maybe or the blessing like the blessing, authority yeah. the yeah i can picture it abstract in my head but i can't think yeah, of it. yeah like it's like we're, we're acknowledging it and like we're yeah. transferring our yep. desire for you to do this to this person yeah or group of people yeah um cool um is spreading the gospel more important than serving so that i think that was probably somewhere in the middle you kind of we're, we're talking yeah. about the apostles um, saying this isn't this isn't for us to do, but it's, it's important for someone else to do. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a challenging question of which which do we prioritize? Um, now, spreading the gospel is serving. That's what Jesus has called us to do. Uh, go therefore into all the world, every tribe language and people and make disciples that's that's a command so to serve is to actually do that at one level um, but if it's a case of okay i have a very set number of resources and i can either put all of that into evangelism or i can put all of that into caring for the poor or other social justice issue whatever it might be what's more important I still think it's actually the wrong question because we should be doing both. Um, the book of James is very clear on that. You, know, you say you have faith, great, I'll show you my faith through my works. And so caring for those around us actually gives proof that the gospel is real and actually means something. Um, that said, there, there is a saying, um, I think it's attributed to Francis of Assisi, um, if necessary, like preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. That's a rubbish statement. That's <laughs> not true because I can serve you with everything that the gospel entails, but if I never actually tell you 
the gospel, you've just had someone really care for you, but you're not saved. You don't have that saving knowledge. So I personally would side on giving the gospel, spoken word gospel priority, but I would want to balance that with, if I'm only ever just telling someone the gospel and then treating them like rubbish, I'm not preaching the gospel. I utterly failed and actually didn't honor to Christ in that regard. Yeah, so you got a one one can't come out, one can't come without the other. So that's yeah. James. Yeah. And then it's balancing it. So I'll, this is, I guess, on the church wide scale, they've balanced it between people. So some people were really prioritizing yeah. ministry and some were really prioritizing. Yeah. Like in terms of um, should every Christian be involved in both serving the poor and evangelism and whatever else we want to throw into that? Yes and no. Some people are brilliant evangelists and they should give their attention and efforts into that wholeheartedly they don't neglect serving the poor but that's not where their priority is whereas there are others who are quite frankly terrible evangelists <laughs> to be blunt but they seem to be able to like show hospitality and care for the most outside person that should be celebrated and encouraged and yes they should put all of their effort into that not to the neglect of evangelism, but God has gifted us each yeah. differently. So play to the strongest gift that God has given you. Yeah. Not to the neglect of the others, but play your strongest hand. Okay. Yeah. So just know who you are and go, yeah. go on. Yeah. Cool. Uh, thank you, David, for sharing God's word. We often over, overlook maybe how we serve in our ministry every day. Thank you for the beautiful reminder. So thank you. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> um oh there's lots more questions here we go how should we how should we serve in ministry that's a really broad question uh i'm not sure how to take that do you i'm not sure how to take that one either because okay. that is so <laughs> so so broad um how should we serve in ministry um let me give an equally broad answer to the best of our spirit empowered ability with the character and intent of jesus <laughs> okay practically how that looks in the day-to-day yeah that could mean a thousand different things uh, i guess like underlying that is you saying um like ministry can take on lots of forms it's not yeah. the preaching here and it's yeah. not the giving yeah. people food ministry it could be a lot of can actually just be being a really good and diligent worker in the workplace yeah. Yeah. Um, i yeah with the character of christ is probably where i'm still going to land on it in, like with integrity is also I think important. Like I I know that I am sinful. Hmm. I don't want to hide that in any ministry that I'm ever doing. Um, if I'm if I sort of present myself as a holier than thou, I've got everything together in my ministry. I've done it wrong, and I'm actually no longer serving Jesus. I'm if anything serving myself, and that's idolatry, and I would therefore need to repent of that. So serving with integrity, knowing where you are at with Jesus and being honest to that. Yeah. But yeah, serving in so many different things in so many different contexts. Yep. Um, feel free, whoever asked that question, to um, follow up with more detail if you if you had a particular thought in mind. Though. Yeah. But uh, good, good answer to that question, I think. Uh, the disciples chose to take care of the widows, or chosen to take care of the widows were all men. In today's church, should that be a principle to follow? Oh, <laughs> meaty. Um, let me think of how to answer this one best. Um, I'm also recognizing that I'm in a slightly different church tradition to my own, and I want to give proper honor and respect to differing opinions. So my personal, me as an individual, opinion on this one um, i i think women can serve absolutely um, the mission field is littered with single women who are doing an absolutely incredible job um, partly because the men have failed to actually step up i throw my own gender on the bus a little bit so yeah women can absolutely serve there are roles that I think are restricted to men, uh, particularly um, within, say, 
an Anglican hierarchy structure, I would say the senior minister should be male, but absolutely females, women can and should come in under that and serve um, because both of us, both of us is the wrong way to word it, but we are made in the image of God. If you only have men, you no longer have the, the image of God, you have half the image of God. You need the woman there to have that complete image of God. Yes, that's made perfect in Christ, but both genders bring different things, like to, to play us the stereotypes a little bit. Men are more task orientated, um, but we can actually be quite uncaring in how we sometimes go about that. Whereas women are a thousandfold more hospitable and bring in that sort of caring, emotional nurture that men are just terrible at. Um, and so you, when you bring both together, you get this complementing harmony. Now, I do acknowledge there will be people that will disagree with me on my position. I hear that, I respect that. Let's chat later. Um, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a delicate one in, in today's world because there are ex very extreme positions on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. And probably somewhere in, like somewhere in the middle, I think is like you can debate and agree to disagree on that somewhere in the middle. Yeah, part. absolutely. Yeah. Um, like I know, so within my own church, I disagree without official church ah, policy yep. slightly, and that's that's okay. Um, there are thinking about like serving as women. There are examples like in the, the leadership descriptions, uh, particularly Timothy and I think Titus. It's referring to both men and women in how the actual phrasing is. Like it will sort of say, okay, men, this is what you need to be like. And it gives a pretty robust character description. And then it might say straight on the men and the women likewise. Yes, it doesn't give as, like it doesn't give the detail, but it's sort of saying like everything that I've just said, it's also applied to the women who are in an equivalent position. And so the New Testament is giving room Yep. for women to serve absolutely yep. so you don't see that the, the only men being chosen as a particular thing to follow just happened that they chose seven men maybe they'll be best suited in that particular circumstance yeah um and with some of the more uh, some of the leadership positions they are reserved for men uh, in places in the new testament there could be an aspect of that coming sure. into play yeah um we're just not given enough information to be yeah. able to conclusively say yeah, so that's definitely what's happening. Well, that's definitely not what's happening. Yeah. Um, where the Bible's unclear, we have to equally yeah. remain unclear. Yeah. Um, there has, I, I have been thinking about preaching through like a set of topical, like every now and then we want to visit these issues. So it might be time soon. Maybe as we break, have a break in the middle of Leviticus, we'll have a think about that sort of stuff. Maybe. It's a big issue. That's a huge <laughs> Yeah. Um, any more now, or is that the bottom? That's it. Great. Um, thanks, Dave. Great answers to the questions. Thank you for the great questions as well.